You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Being able to help other women, that's something I feel really passionate about. And if that extreme publicity from all those years ago means that other dads, mums who've got football mad daughters, then encourage their daughters to say, hey, look at what you could do if you feel strongly enough, really want to do it, have the aptitude for it, prepare to work for it. It is an option for you, which of course it wasn't remotely in my day when I was growing up. Sometimes I might get stick from somebody for gender reason, and then you'll see it, their avatar on Twitter is of them holding their baby daughter. And so those ones I can't resist but to go back and say, really, how would you feel about a man saying this to your daughter when she's when she's a grown up? And they always come back, whoa, 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 I didn't, I didn't mean that. I mean, I didn't mean anything like that. And that's totally different. Oh, the one question which makes me roll my eyes. I have to smile so as not to offend them. But, um, so do you like football then? Oh, <laughs> Seriously, the number of people who've asked me that question over the years. I just think, how do you think I got to do this job without being, not liking football, not loving football, not being passionate about football, but being completely and utterly obsessed with football? Hi there. Match the Day is a British institution. The BBC's Saturday Night Football Show started in 1964 and still sets the weekly agenda for the sport that dominates the UK and the league that enthralls the world. But it's incredible to think it took until 2007 to hear the voice of a female commentator. In this podcast, Jackie Oatley talks to me about the attention she received on the back of that appearance. We also discuss the state of play for female sports broadcasters and journalists in the UK. What's changing, what's not and as usual, the way social media has affected the landscape. As you'll hear, everyone, including me, has a lot to learn. Check out the show notes for links to Jackie and all the organisations she mentions in this podcast. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Mr. Richard Clark or Sports Content Strategy. That's me personally and, of course, my company. Check out my website, Mr. Richard Clark, for any information you need on me or to contact me. Anyway, let's talk women in football. Let's talk women in sports broadcasting with this lady. My name is Jackie Oatley and I'm a sports broadcaster. Thanks for speaking to me, Jackie. You're probably most famous, correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably most famous as the first female commentator on Match the Day back in 2007. How do you look back on that experience now? (laughs) Um, Well, it was exactly 12 years ago this weekend just gone so uh, it always feels quite fresh in the mind I don't think about it all the time but obviously people talk to me about it so then it is always there and it feels like a, a different person a different broadcaster a different commentator because of how I felt at the time compared to how I feel now going into the Women's World Cup and doing a TV commentary there for the host broadcaster um It was just a very difficult experience. It was obviously brand new to me. I'd been doing plenty of radio commentary, but completely under the radar. And I seemed to, I'd about fit in, but I didn't really have a song and dance made of it. And it was before the days of Twitter, I might add, uh, which I joined exactly 10 years ago this month. And it it was very tricky because the main problem with it was obviously all the publicity as a journalist we don't want to become the story I mean that's what we're always told and and frankly that's how I felt I was there to tell other people what was happening on the pitch in that match between Fulham and Blackburn so when the headlines and the newspapers and phone-ins on TV and radio were all about me I was incredibly uncomfortable about it I didn't want to be a celebrity I didn't want to be a token I didn't want to be any difference from any of the men who had been commentating on matches day for years or any of the other commentators for Five Live who were given a game on match of the day, which is frankly all I was. I wasn't handed a job. I hadn't been promised any more. It was literally a game. So I hadn't thought of it as being earth shattering from that point of view because it was the next step, if you like, from, from doing radio commentary. Um, but it was just difficult to deal with the, the the maelstrom of publicity and uproar and all the rest of it uh, because I wasn't used to it. I wasn't expecting it particularly, possibly naively, but we had just tried to crack on with it. There'd been no press release. There'd been no media day press conference. It, it just 
was leaked probably accidentally by word of mouth people who talk in our industry um, and unfortunately made the newspaper to, uh, on the Tuesday before the Saturday which gave it lots of time to grow legs so I don't um, worry about it now I don't think uh, oh that was that was awful I wish that had never happened I just think okay I'd much rather that hadn't have happened I'd much rather have just bobbed up at quarter to midnight that Saturday night and people gone oh maybe there's something slightly different here and that would have been the end of it that's what I was hoping would happen but life isn't like that and I get why it happened and I think you've just got to look on the bright side and just think well hopefully now having been the first to do something or other it means that the second and third who've done it um, haven't had that sort of um, stress if you like to deal with and um, and hopefully now we can all just crack on and hopefully it's not such a big deal which is really all any of us would ask for. So are you, I was just taking the bones out of that, are you slightly uncomfortable with the role of role model to potential um, aspiring uh, female sports journalists? Well, I don't like being bigged up as such because I was just doing my job. I really was. And it was something I wanted to do, something I was desperate to do in terms of being a sports journalist, a football reporter and commentator. I had no idea it would lead to match of the day. I mean, that wasn't the target. I, I didn't believe that was possible. But of course, you start doing non-league football, local radio, and, and then um, bigger local radio, and then national radio. And, and of course, one thing leads to another. So that's how it happened. But what I do enjoy from it if that makes any sense is um being able to help other women that's something i feel really passionate about and if that extreme publicity from all those years ago um means that other dads mums who've got football mad daughters then encourage their daughters to say hey look at what you could do if you feel strongly enough really want to do it have the aptitude for it prepared to work for it it is an option for you, which, of course, it wasn't remotely in my day when I was growing up. Not remotely. Working in football wasn't an option at all. Never suggested to me. I never thought about it. I never, well, I'd love to have done it. I never had the confidence to think I can do this. It really only happened much later in life when I changed career at the age of 27. So, um, yeah, if anything positives come out of it, then I would suggest hopefully it is that those little girls or those older girls or young women can think, yeah, that's something I could feasibly do because that's what happens. Women can commentate. I've given opportunities to commentate if, if that's what they put their mind to. And there's no reason why gender should be a barrier. And, and that's all we're aiming for. And um, and if I can help mentor in any way, as I've, I've tried to do any women who want to talk about anything privately off the record, um, just for a bit of advice about stuff, you know, what's it like? What's the reaction? How do I avoid pitfalls? Blah, blah, blah. Always more than happy to help. More than happy to help. So what do you say to aspiring journalists? What are the pitfalls? What is your general advice? Yeah, I'd say back yourself. I think if you really, really, really want to do it, which you have to, and it always makes me laugh. <laughs> it makes me laugh if people find out my job and, oh, the one question which makes me roll my eyes and I have to smile so as not to offend them. But um, So do you like football then? <laughs> seriously the number of people who've asked me that question over the years I just think how do you think I've got to do this job without being not liking football not loving football not being passionate about football but being completely and utterly obsessed with football that it consumes my every waking thought um but they obviously think that you can just get recruited or headhunted from some other position. Like, oh, I know, we'll, we'll make her a football commentator. It's, it's laughable, really, with the, the commitment, really, that you have to have. And, and the, like I said, the obsession, really, I think you have to have um, to do the job properly. Although perhaps being a little less obsessed might have helped me in the past and <laughs> be able to switch off at times. That's something I'm learning as I go along, but uh, to have a slightly better life balance. But um, better families help with that, I guess. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, the pitfalls obviously are that you have to, um, well, frankly, never make a mistake. That would be the ideal scenario because I've seen incidents before where a woman has made a mistake. And obviously, if she's made a mistake, it's because she's a woman. It's got nothing to do with the fact that she's a human and that men make mistakes too. But those mistakes coming out of a, a male mouth just don't sound quite so bad. And, and there's a concrete example of that that I know of somebody who made an error during a match. She hadn't seen that 
um, a goal had been offside. It wasn't in the days of Twitter or anything else. Nobody had told her back at base. Um, so she carried on with the game as if as if a team was 1-0 up and it turned out later that they weren't. The goal had been ruled out for offside while she'd been looking down and buzzing into the studio. Uh, she lost her job because of it. And I've personally heard two senior male reporters make exactly the same mistake and they both got laughed off and um, carried on working next week. So, um, yeah, we've a long way to go on that front. But I don't want to put any women off. On the contrary, I think the more of us there are around, um, and if we're hopefully good at the job, have the aptitude, the knowledge, obviously it goes without saying, um, and the experience, which you can only get via air miles on the clock, um, then then hopefully it won't be such an issue in years to come. You mentioned Twitter a couple of times. What's been the effect of social media to a job such as yours and being a, being a female in, in a job such as yours? Oh, there's a variety of strands to that. One of the, I suppose, the positives and negatives. Positives are that you can get so much more information, frankly, about the teams you're covering. Um, local reporters, fans, you can have a scroll, you can sort of get a general vibe about things, latest news. It's just a, an invaluable tool for reporters generally, I think. Um, opinion being pinged out there from people who you respect is really interesting without them having to write an entire article on the subject. Um I think positives that this might have helped me at the time had I had we all been on Twitter long before that match of the day, people would have seen a trail of me working in football, interviewing senior figures in football, reporting and commentating on football every week. So they could have just scrolled through that and seen that, well, obviously I have a background in football, whereas a lot of assumptions were made at the time of that first match of the day. Because a lot of people who didn't listen to Five Live had never heard of me and there was no trail of me on the internet. And so they, they made assumptions that, that I'd yeah, just been sort of plucked from obscurity and, and plonked in the commentary box, which wasn't the case. But um, I think Twitter could have helped on that front. So I think it can help in that regard to, for people to place you. Um, the negatives, of course, I know a lot of commentators, senior ones who didn't want to join Twitter, but have had their arms twisted by their employers because they want to tell people where they are. Here's a photo of me in the commentary box. and We've got this much on this particular network tonight, so make sure you tune in. Um, and people can be pretty sensitive, understandably, to you know them putting their heart and soul into a commentary completely neutrally, unbiased. And then you can get a stream of abuse from the losing side or the side whose player you criticised and what have you. And, and people having worked really hard, travelling home, getting home, switching on the Twitter and seeing a load of abuse, they frankly don't want to see it. So it can get to you. I think you do have to grow layers of skin as I've had to over the years some people may be naturally thick-skinned I'm not one of them I would class myself as a normal standard person on that front that you don't like stick or abuse but if you get it particularly for silly things it is like wash off a duck's back now um the only thing that would hurt would be if I'd made a mistake then I would be kicking myself or I don't know if it's really personal that can be unpleasant because there's obviously no filter for that but I think on the balance I find social media to be fun really fun you can have a lot of laughs with it a lot of banter a lot of humor but I find it really informative I really do I just need to spend less time on it so I get more done and that's something I'm trying to focus on at the moment yeah switch the thing off it's you, me, and the rest of the world with that. But, uh, oh, but... It's, really, it's really hard. You know, you're trying to do some writing, write an article, and things ping up and notifications. And I, I, you know, I went on holiday with my kids last week, and I deleted it off my phone, so I didn't get into the habit of mindless scrolling. This really just eats up time. The latest trick is to treble-click the big button at the bottom of the iPhone. It turns it black and white, which uh, supposedly makes it less enticing to click consistently oh interesting yeah so treble click so treble click and also every sunday you should get the amount of times you picked it up in the week and that should be horrific for you <laughs> it is for me uh, well it's a bit misleading because i listen to a lot of podcasts and yeah. so it can look really bad with the use of that you know that doesn't really help because it's completely skews the whole thing but never mind <laughs> one thing i have noticed about you on on social media is you will take up a cause you will bite back at people if if you feel the need do you have to be cautious about that or what's the thought process about that because you know you'll get stick from fans and you'll also get stick from fans because you're a woman in sport 
if it, mm. if, if, I, I assume I'm right in saying that. If there's extra yeah, stuff I mean, coming your way. Yeah, sometimes I don't realise that's why they give me stick because it's not obvious. If they say, oi, so-and-so, get back to the kitchen, then it's obvious they're having a go at you because you're a woman and, and really that's that doesn't bother me in the slightest. Um if they're having a go at me because they don't like being challenged by a woman, then I don't necessarily know that because I can't tell. I mean, I've, I've always been female and I don't, I can't read their minds as to why they're affronted by me challenging their opinion or giving an opinion that they don't like. Um, but of course you're going to get the, the, the club ones. I mean, we all get that. and It, it is pretty tiresome because you think, oh, come on, I'm just tweeting. And I, I tweeted something about, about the penalty that Mo Salah won the other day, if you want to describe it as that. And, you know, Morrison had his arms all over him, was pulling him back and arm across the face. And that's what I sent a couple of still shots. I don't care about Cardiff. I don't care about Liverpool. I mean, in a negative or a positive way, they're nothing to do with me. They're just two football clubs who I was watching on the TV that day. Oh, the stick I got from Cardiff fans. It's got nothing to do. It's got nothing to do. It could have been Brighton. It could have been Wolves. It could have been... Birmingham City, it could have been Exeter City. It was just a, a fact of the match that I was watching that day. And that is frustrating when you, you get abused for something that's just nonsense. But but again, that's much easier to take than if it's something sort of more personal or from somebody you sort of know or something like that. But um, yeah, it, it depends what mood I'm in. But I do bite back at people if I think... <sighs> It's difficult to explain the exact scenario, but it depends on the situation. But if they've just got something wrong completely wrong they've had a go at you for being wrong but you actually have evidence that they're wrong sometimes you just send a message back going yeah usually politely but actually this is the case um and sometimes I might get stick from somebody for gender reason and then you'll see their avatar on twitter is of them holding their baby daughter and so those ones I can't resist but to go back and say really how would you feel about a man saying this to your daughter when she's when she's a grown up, and they always come back. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I didn't, I didn't mean that. I mean, I didn't mean anything like that. And that's totally different. And it's just got them thinking a little bit. And sometimes you kind of make friends afterwards, and those are the more satisfying ones. But I really try not to get involved too much because it really takes up too much headspace, and I just don't have time to be sitting, scrolling, replying to people, blocking people, and it, it really can be hugely detrimental to your mental health. A bit strong, but. It, it it can really get into your head and spend too much time, take up too much of your headspace when actually, you know, I've got two young kids, I've got husbands, I've got jobs, various jobs up in the air, um, things I need to be doing, loads of admin I'm so behind with. And, and actually, you really need to focus sometimes. So that's something I'm focusing on now. Is the amount of stick you get online, uh, on social media, that's gender-based, is that reducing I don't really get that much, which might sound ah, surprising okay. to you. Yeah, I really don't. It's not a day-to-day thing at all. Really? Because it's, because because yeah. c- c- I I mean I was thinking about this when I was I was preparing the questions for you, and I was thinking, well, if anything, for me, social media has exposed how much overt sexism there is actually out there. Because I, I don't see it, and it's not particularly on my radar I'm not not, I don't don't see it but I'm not incredibly sensitive to it because I'm a bloke right and I'm not as sensitive as a a woman would be to it and and yet and 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 some guys would or some men have laughed off some of these issues because they're well that's not happening that isn't really happening that isn't the way it is and then you look at social media and I see some stuff some comments that are out there and I say well this is this is still happening this is much stronger than I I, I realize so if anything social media has exposed what is out there to a certain extent do you get what I'm saying about that yeah I do and I think maybe it can highlight issues that people actually have in their mind prejudices that people have that maybe are not so blatant but are out there and I think really what I'm more concerned about is how gender bias and and any other really discrimination manifests itself in terms of women getting jobs and how we do our jobs that's really something that affects us a lot more than some bloke on Twitter with an an egg for an avatar saying get back in the kitchen love do you see what I mean that's Mm. that's not really that offensive I don't really care if someone says that it doesn't happen every day it doesn't happen every week or month uh, unless I've already muted them, in which case I can't see it. Um, they, they might be saying it all the time, and I'll just not see it. Um, so, but it's more about how it affects 
women in jobs and I think there's probably a lot more prejudice very difficult to quantify and to be 100% sure but I think I was talking to a colleague the other day who has lost some work in TV presenting with the suggestion being that she was too old at the age of 30 not too old but they were going younger shall we say um, and yet all the, the males who've been doing a similar job to her have not been cold. They're carrying on. Um, so I think that there are there are maybe some gender issues out there in terms of the way people work and maybe women having babies and are they still able to carry on or uh, given the work once they've had those babies when they want to carry on doing the work. Um, so there are a few of those issues out there which I would suggest are a bit more important than you know, a few idiots on social media. Yes, I was going to talk about this because um, I read Alison Bender's blog about motherhood. I think one of the phrases she's got up there is, I, I miss my child's first steps, but I saw England win on penalties. That's sort of a, a byline <laughs> she's got there. And, and, and despite the legislation that's out there, motherhood, I was going to say derails many a career. It certainly pushes careers in different directions and it's it's and despite the legislation which is rightly in place it is difficult sometimes to get back to if not previous standings but have the momentum behind your career how hard have you found that because you've got two children if i'm right yeah yeah they just turned five and eight well i'm maybe a bit of a weirdo in lots of ways but uh, in one particular way is the fact that i started tv presenting when i was pregnant for the first time (laughs) which is probably quite unusual most people will probably already be in it or go into it later or whatever but um because i was doing radio and only ever wanted to do radio i had no ambition to do tv at all just didn't appeal to me i mean my the height of my ambition was to work for radio five live that's that's what I listened to religiously all the time um, in my teens and 20s, right from the start of Radio 5 as it was, um, and listen to football from matches. I'd go to matches on a Saturday and have my little radio, pre-digital days, with my little radio earphones in and um, would listen to the reporter at the game I was at and all the other reports from the other games. And So that's what I thought of. So I hadn't thought about any of these issues. And I also think before you have children, you don't think about what life's going to be like afterwards. I mean, it's so, so different. So when I did have my first child, I had started presenting a bit for the BBC News Channel. And then more work came my way with the women's football for the BBC. Um, And it is maybe different to other industries in that I didn't really take much maternity leave. But equally, it's not as if I came rushing back full time either, because this job isn't like a standard job where you're either full time or you do set three days a week, like a lot of my friends do. And so I did come back after both my kids were born on April 20th, three years apart, coincidentally. But after the first one, I came back on a Saturday in August to do matches um, for BBC uh, and then after the second one, I actually came back after five weeks just to do a women's football show because I blooming loved that show and it was quite close to my house. And the plan was to take my baby with me, although actually he stayed home and it was only for a few hours. So I actually kept my career going during having children. And it was the right thing to do for me because had I not done that, then I'm pretty sure five, uh, ITV wouldn't have rung me up one day saying, would you like a three-year contract presenting international football and including the Euros and the World Cup and also darts, which, of course, I jumped at and was the best thing I've ever done. So it worked for me to keep my hand in, even though it wasn't full-time. It was mentally full-time because I never switched off from work at all, uh, which was really, really difficult, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, I I kept on top of all the football when I had babies and I had my second child just before the um, World Cup in uh, Brazil. And I ended up waking up in the night to feed him and he'd go back to sleep. And then I'd carry on watching the matches that I'd recorded on Sky Plus, which we had in the bedroom. Um, And he'd wake up again for the next feed and I still hadn't been to sleep. So I did really keep across everything. I I never missed a thing. And, And mentally it was very taxing. But... It was something I think had I not been so passionate about my job, I wouldn't have done it. And, and I absolutely love my job. So it, it worked for me, but it, it was very difficult. And I did the women's FA Cup final from Milton Keynes six weeks after having a C-section. And uh, it was 
not something I would do again. Um, it was very, it was very hard. Um, I, I won't go into details, but um, it was also pretty painful um, when I'm trying to feed and uh, I'm trying to do an OB for several hours. It, it was not about, not a good idea. But hey, you know, we live and learn. It's life experience, and I'd happily talk to any other women who are thinking of uh, carrying on working or taking a break. Um, because people don't really talk about these things. Everyone sort of is a little bit left to their own devices. Can I have kids and work in this industry? Well, the answer is yes, but there's not one way to do it. And childcare is a nightmare if you don't have family nearby, which we don't. Um, so it's, it's it's pretty hard work, but it is what you make it. And and I think we women maybe need to talk to each other about these things and help each other out and, and give each other advice and tips and tricks because I found a way around it with a super sportive husband who works full time and uh, we make it work. Have you ever felt the need to change yourself in any way when you're presenting? What I'm talking about here is I've heard about female newsreaders who lower their voice because it's considered to have greater gravitas. Females who may women who may change their hair colour because you don't want to be be a be a blonde because blondes aren't taken as seriously as as brunettes. We've heard these stories. Have you ever have you ever felt the need to do that? I've never been told to do that. No one's ever suggested anything to me. Um, I think people tend to say things behind your back in this industry rather than to your face, frankly, unfortunately. But that's the way of the world. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I, I work really hard to go to the gym to try not to put on any weight. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's no way I'd just live my life as if I was doing something that wasn't in vision because I wouldn't feel as confident on air, frankly. And also you're much less likely to be given the work. So that's the reality of it. Um, no one says it to you, but yes, I spend a lot of money on haircuts. You might not believe that, but <laughs> I do go somewhere um, that I you know, really like and love the way they do things and advise and what have you. Um, I do try and go to the gym most days if I can or find a way around it, or I take my TRX straps to the World Cup and try and do something every day. And it's frustrating. You have to restrict your uh, intake and the type of food that you want to have. Um, but I'm not moaning about it. It is part of the job. Um, I think the frustration comes maybe with women who have maybe male counterparts who don't feel they have to make that kind of effort and, and their jobs are still uh, rather more safe um, as a result. And that is the inequality, I guess, that that people feel. And I know that because I talk to others, uh, broadcasters and presenters, and, um, and it is seen as different standards, really. Um, but I don't, I don't try to look after myself for anybody else. I try to do it so that I feel confident. So, for example, when I present the darts, you know, I, I buy clothes um, usually in the weeks leading up to it because you get through a lot of clothes when you're doing TV. Um, and so I plan ahead in terms of clothes, um, in terms of getting my hair, getting my nails done, making sure I've been to the gym enough, making sure I've made a load of vegetable soup <laughs> so I can feel healthy. And those are all things that you don't get taught on them. Um, training courses and journalism courses of course not but everybody's different and uh, it is an investment it costs a lot of money to, to do haircuts and nails and you know gyms and what have you a lot of money in clothes of course but um but that's not something to moan about that's just that's just life and, and making yourself feel as confident as you can be in terms of sports broadcasting is is football different because i look at cricket and i look at Alison mitchell um who's been part of TMS for a considerable period of time and now is in channel, on Channel 9, I believe. And that seemed a little bit more seamless and Ishigua, Ebony Rainsford, Brent as well. It seemed a little bit more... Uh, the cricketing world seemed a little bit more accepting than the football world to female broadcasts. Is, is, am I reading that correctly? What's your view? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Ali Mitchell's one of my best friends and we've been on holiday together and we talk about this kind of thing every time we meet up. Um, and she's not really had a problem. She's not. She's worked with some of the most uh, Yorkshire, the most... <laughs> <laughs> That's prejudice in itself. <laughs> if you're thinking what I'm, what I'm thinking. Um, the most traditionally traditional uh, men if you like and she's never had a problem she just hasn't I, partly that's down to Ali herself being so blinking good at her job she's just she's just excellent and respected by everybody so therefore she's never 
prompted those questions in anybody's mind because right from the start, and I met her when she was working for the Asian Network and she was doing bits for Five Live and we met at uh, Molyneux when we were covering a Wolves match together and, and been bosom buddies ever since. Um, but she is just so good at her job. That end of story that people just people just don't question it. And, and I think you can also be good at your job in football, by the way, and it's be questioned subliminally in people's minds possibly because of the type of supporters I don't know I don't want to suggest that football fans are not not quite as intelligent as cricket fans but you obviously do get a lot in terms of volume of, of football supporters who are extremely um biased one-eyed about the club that's fine we you know we can all adore our clubs um but that can manifest self in, in different ways and sometimes very negatively towards people and so I think some people if somebody said something about your team that you don't like and you know you're cross with them then I think sometimes people try to find the lowest hanging fruit of targets and if it's you're part of a minority group for whatever that be then people can lash out I think but um, in terms of being accepted by colleagues um, yeah I know Ali's never had a problem with that and that's fantastic nor should she have um, I think in football, there probably is more cynicism, maybe less so now. But I think when there were fewer of us, um, people would question. I remember, I'm not going to name him, but there was one summariser who I commentated on a Premier League match with once. And um, and he was not one of the younger summarisers. And uh, he was very lovely, very, very nice. And he said, uh, so, so who did your dad play for then? And I said, oh, he didn't play for anyone. And he said, oh, what did your dad do? And it was just the first two questions were just quite amusing because he obviously came from a generation where for a woman to be talking about football, that, you know, she must have been brought up with it. You know, a dad who took her or, you know, my dad never took me to football and um, nobody did um, until I decided I want to go myself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of preconceptions which come out in different ways, but most of the time I don't think about it. I just crack on with a job and it's only really people who ask me about it, which then make it sort of reasons to talk about. Although, of course, I am vocal on Twitter about about issues as and when they arise, because I like to stick up for, for people and, and not sort of keep my head under a blanket and, and hope it'll go away. I do I do sort of bang the drum a little bit. But for a good reason, not just to stamp my feet because I'm cross about something, but to try and make a difference. And that's why I'm on the National Committee of the Football Writers Association. That's why I was one of the founding members of you know, women in football, because we want to actively make a difference, not just sort of go, oh, isn't it terrible? This is what's going on. But hey, what can we do about this? Who can we tell about this? How can we get someone to change their policies? How can we get women to feel more confident in themselves and apply for more jobs, better jobs, the ones that they maybe don't feel qualified for? But to hang with it you know the guys are applying for jobs even if they're not fully qualified for them let's get women to start feeling that way so I think there are lots of positive ways we can you know we can turn any negativity and discrimination we have to turn them into positive sometimes. Carrie Brown has just become chair of the Football Writers Association that would seem to be a real a real breakthrough I suppose in many ways do you, do you think that that can uh, usher in a lot of change? Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, I was one of the the National Committee members who voted unanimously for Carrie um, on Wednesday this week, Tuesday this week. And um, she's she's there on marriage since she's come into the FWA. She has done loads of work for us, you know, loads of video stuff. And she's been a really positive influence. Um, and it seemed that seeing as, you know, our dear colleague Vicky Allvice is no longer with us and is unable to take up that role which we probably thought she may well have done and, and I know she wanted to. Carrie was seen as the uh, natural successor to Paddy Barkley um, not because she's a woman but because she has been that positive influence on us and I think it's an organisation and an industry which has needed to look at itself and to change and the FWA has been actively really proactive in trying to become more diverse because previously yes it was um full of you know, white male football writers because uh, the industry has been full of white male football writers but now we're trying to help the industry change to be more attractive to those journalists who who want to get into football writing who are into football writing and want to be part of an organization who can support them who can help them who can you know we can come together and make the industry ideally uh, slightly more user-friendly at times and um, there's a lot that can be done so I think Carrie's appointment is 
definitely a positive one. And um, and our um, the man on the committee who does all the registrations and and membership messaged us the other day to say that they had several new members that day as a result of Carrie's announcement. So so that was a you know a nice thing to happen that day immediately. But um, yeah, I think it should be very good for us going forwards. Uh, and women in football. Um... I've seen some videos that you've made, and I've seen your hashtag. Is that a formed organisation? Is that is that a, with meetings, or is it a movement, as it were? Oh yes, it's a, an organisation right. that was formed in two thousand and seven. Oh, I'm, uh, way, I'm way behind. I apologise. Go on, sorry. Go on. <laughs> you need to keep up, Rich. Sorry, mate. I'm <laughs> miles behind. I didn't realize. I, I thought. I thought that you just started that. Sorry. No, no, I'm going to set Anna Kessel on you. I tell you, you'd be in yeah, trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, to, to be honest, to, to be honest, if I wasn't so damn honest, I'd cut all this bit out of the podcast, but it's staying in. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Good, let's get these things out there. Yeah. For people who don't know what women in football is. No, it's an organisation set up by Shelley Alexander from the BBC and Anna Kessel, who was at The Guardian at the time, because they felt that there were a lot of women working individually within the game without any support, if that's the right word, around them. So they would say be the only female in the office, in the marketing department or in the boardroom or on the physio's bench or um, in the press room. And they thought it'd be a good idea to form a uh, committee and a board uh, and I'm very pleased that they asked me to become part of that. And there were several of us who became part of the uh, Women in Football organising group and started uh, having events, which I would host if ever I was available, um, at Football Ground, starting at West Ham, to try to encourage women to come along and to tell us about their experiences. And we didn't really know where it was going to go, but the idea was to be a networking organisation to champion and support our peers, to be somewhere where people could come for advice. Now we offer legal advice, pro bono, where suitable and where we're able to. Um, they've helped me, actually, in recent times. They've been very, very helpful. Lots of women have come to us very confidentially with, with actually issues of, of gender discrimination in their club. It can be very sensitive because they don't want them to be made public. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want their bosses to know that they're that they're going to have to challenge them on a certain issue and so it's it's been a real force for good and it's been absolutely fantastic to see how the organization has grown over 12 years and and it has changed it's evolved we do have some sponsorship now but really could do with some more we have some fantastic people on board who work part-time but it would be absolutely phenomenal if we uh, we're able to make people full time, and if we had an office with an address, all these kind of things would be really desirable, so that we could continue to put on more events and, and to support women in the industry. And it's not just for women; we have a man on our board. We have men who come to our events now who are really keen to work out what they can do better in their football organisation to get the best out of women, because there's so much talent out there which has traditionally not been tapped into because women haven't either been welcomed or felt welcome or the culture has been such that they feel they shouldn't apply to work somewhere because all they see is males in front of them um, but men actually are actively wanting more women to work in their organizations there, there is evidence to suggest that it um, reduces the amount of corruption um, in business and lots of positive reasons why you would want women to work in your workforce um, it can sometimes slightly alter the dynamic in a good way um, to make it a little bit less bombastic less full of not so full of testosterone so men don't always have to feel like they have to thump their chests and and act a certain way in an you know in their office environment um, so it's great that we're able to help organizations to become more diverse and um, and it has really been a force for good. And I think there are a lot of women out there who have said how much women in football have helped them. It's just that we're keen to help more. So if anybody would like to sponsor us, that would be phenomenal. You've talked a lot about the small, unobtrusive little bits of sexism that have affected both you and, and other people. Um, is that more dangerous than the overt sexism you get and and also how how do you eradicate that given that it is subtle by nature 
Yeah, I don't think you can eradicate prejudice. And I think some people are quite clever to cover their tracks. I think there are maybe issues with women having babies. I lost a certain amount of work when I had uh, a baby, a second child. Um, I wasn't informed about it. And I was absolutely fuming when I found out. And then the same thing happened to a colleague who had a baby. And they also lost their work at the same place as a result. And nothing was ever done about it. Um, So there is a lot that goes on that you probably don't hear about because individually it's not been made public or people have not banged the drum or it's not been a clear case of legal discrimination that that the lawyer could do anything about. Um, But there is a lot of subtle discrimination that goes on. I've suggested previously about how men can maybe look a certain way and and still keep their jobs and, and women can't. So I think we have a long way to go on that front um but yeah i think if people are thinking in their minds well a bloke's gonna know more about football than a woman so i'm gonna give him a job there's not a lot you can do about that apart from apart from ensure that you're getting really good women applying for jobs and they're backing themselves and that they are confident enough to say i can do this and i want to do this please give me this job because I know from talking to sports editors that they're not getting the number of CVs that they're wanting from females. I spoke to a, you know, a top regional sports editor um, of a newspaper who said we had a couple of jobs going and I actually wanted to bring a woman onto our desk and we just didn't get the call. We got one female CV and it was terrible. But he knows that there are women out there who who would be certainly up for the job if they were to put themselves forwards, but women don't always do that. So I think partly we're to blame, partly it's a cultural thing, and I think you can't just point the finger at one person or, or one industry or uh, one set of people. Um, it's a case of let's do our part, let's encourage women to back themselves and, and get the qualifications and get the work experience and put themselves out there. Um, and if you have to fake confidence in a in an interview or if you have to fake confidence when you're on air then just do it do what you have to do um and then the more you do a job the more confident you get and the better you'll get at it so um and as for the people appointing people i think i think those times are changing i think the environment i mean you see it on twitter all the time don't you people saying you know what about all male white lineups and panels and what have you at least it's being discussed now whereas previously it was it was never an issue and um, it was just accepted that you'd have all male panels for question of sport. You know, I had them all the time when I was growing up. It, you didn't really think any differently. And, and Five Live and BBC have made sort of conscious decisions to to address that. And um, and I think that's the way forward is to make them conscious decisions rather than just continue doing what you've always done. You bring up question of sport, and this brings me to a topic I I I think you'll be an expert in, but I'm not sure. When I was growing up. Uh, question of sport now the women guests on there tended to be mary peters was slightly before my time you might have had sue barker <laughs> but you did have rachel hayho flint oh now yeah. rachel Fla- hayho flint in my opinion is the uk's billy jean king um wow. in her ability to Pull a sport up by its bootstraps because if you look at the Mary Peters and the Sue Barkers and the Virginia Wades of this world, they were in sports that had some prominence in in the in the uh, at the time. Athletics and tennis was on the BBC. Women's cricket wasn't, and yet Rachel Hayho Flint, in the similar way to Billie Jean King, was playing the sport, leading the sport on the pitch, but also as an administrator, as a journalist as well. She's a Wolves woman i know i saw her a few times in wolves uh, when i was with arsenal going to wolves she's a force of nature and i thought she was when she passed away a couple of years ago i actually thought there was not enough plaudits for her because she in terms of women's sport certainly in my opinion is one of the outstanding contributors to this particular uh, area of sport Yes, well said, well said. Yeah, Rachel was, wow, what a special woman she was. It's quite weird for me because I grew up seeing Rachel regularly on the practice course where my dad used to go and I used to go and hit a few balls with him um, at our local golf club. 
and she was on the driving range. She lived next door to the driving range, actually. So we would see her regularly, and she was a family friend, and my brother went to school with her son, Ben, and we just always knew them. And it was before I was mad into football. I was always into sport from the year dot, but and I hadn't quite appreciated, well, I certainly hadn't appreciated what she'd actually done for sport, for women's cricket, for sport in general. And, of course, we'd see her on question of sport and it was always quite amusing and but I, I wasn't really aware as a little kid about that she'd had to write her own match reports after captaining the England women's team <laughs> I wasn't aware that she'd written to Sir Jack Hayward um, in the Caribbean because they had no funding for the women's team and she she appealed to him as, as both people from Wolverhampton who cared passionately about Wolverhampton um, and he was a you know wonderful philanthropist and she got him to sponsor them and then started a a lifelong friendship and of course she brought him to Wolves as well and you know and look what what transpired after that so she had so much influence a positive influence and of course Rachel whenever you think of Rachel Hayhoe Flint I always think about her smile she always had this smile on her face and I, and I don't say that as a cosmetic thing I say it as a she always found everything funny, as most people from the black country do. We see the funny side of everything, often with a dark sense of humour. But she would get on with people and she, yeah, she would ruffle feathers. She would. I've spoken to people whose feathers she's ruffled over the years. But you can't really get anything done, I don't think. You can't drag an industry into a different century without ruffling feathers and challenging the status quo and and getting people to think differently about the way they've been doing things. But she did it with a smile on her face and she always saw the funny side. And she was so respected. And I've been to Molyneux several times since. And the number of people who say, it's just not the same here without Rachel welcoming you and taking the mickey out of something, usually the team, because they were terrible when she, <laughs> in her last few years, sadly, of relegation to the third tier and what have you. But um yeah, she really, really was. And and when she died, I spoke to various people and read a lot of the testimonials from people who had worked with her, who had dealt with her. And there's just so much more to it than than we ever realised. And uh, yeah, she really was a force for good, special lady. Talking about the WSL, when Arsenal ladies at the time, now women, um, were, were the strongest team in the league, this sort of 10 years ago, it was in one... State Now it seems to have moved forward dramatically, that particular league. And crowds, when I was seeing Arsenal ladies in the sort of Faye White, um, Rachel Yankee, Claire Wheatley, Emma Byrne period, it was like 200 people at St Albans and now it's 2,500. It's moved forward quite a lot, but not only... Uh, as a product, but also in the in the psyche of the country, in the in the in the visibility, um, uh, in in that you get it in the newspapers, on the TV, with a show that you apparently don't front anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but but just talk about the progress that it's made over the last ten years. That's my specific question. Yeah, I mean, I first started covering women's football in two thousand and four. Um, so it was very much in a different state. It was a case of pretty much one game on the TV a year. That would be the Women's FA Cup final. And that would cue lots of hilarity because people would think it was very funny that they weren't up to the same standard as men's football, um, as they judged at the time, which was a real surprise thing as they'd be working full time and not having remotely the amount of coaching that they would need or ever have been coached as goalkeepers, for example. I mean, it was it was just ridiculous how they were being judged and because those players had never been given the opportunity to play in the way that the lads had. So, But let's not go into the negative history of it all. It was just the way it was. And so, yes, Arsenal were winning 7-8-0 every week and it was straightforward and they win the league with ease and they'd be in the cup final pretty much every year. But they didn't particularly want that. And the likes of Kelly Smith didn't want to be unchallenged every week apart from in nasty tackles to try to stop her and get her injured um they wanted to be playing in a competitive league but of course the finances weren't around it wasn't just the finances it was the uh lack of support from the men's clubs for example charlton were one of the leading lights would get to cup finals keith bonus there doing a great job and then the men get relegated they sell darren bent for 16 million pounds and they decide to save a few pennies which cost nothing a drop in the ocean the women's program they would just drop it they would just cut it uh, so it was no longer a you know, semi-pro outfit and they'd just 
took all the funding. It, it would cost something like 40 grand a year, I was told at the time, to run a, a women's team and, and maybe 400 grand for the whole academy and everything, which is absolutely nothing in Premier League football. So that was the problem that the FA had. They had to try to change the setup so that women weren't so reliant on the whim of a man on the board who would say, well, we're looking to save money. That can go. We don't need that. And it's been very difficult. But with the advent of the WSL, with licensing, yes, it's controversial, but it has to be a meritocracy. It has to be people who are running the ship in a tight professional kind of way, starting semi-professional and now professional at the top tier. Um, They've had to drive it forwards and try to make it into something a lot more professional than it used to be when it was more of a sort of almost more of a social thing to do because they just didn't have any money at all in the game and players would pay to play for example all these things that people have no idea about and we're judging them completely unfairly and so now we're in a situation whereby it is perfectly feasible for a little girl growing up to be phenomenal at football loving football seeing it all on the tv on a weekly basis watching games um joining a local club because there are loads of them the fa have the wildcats program for example for girls to go along and have a go and make new friends um and then there are clubs for them to play for and they can get picked up by professional clubs they can be full-time professional footballers and potentially play for england whose matches they can see on the television when faye white was little she didn't know there was an england team she played locally and um it was only as she progressed that, of course, she realised there was an England team because they never used to be on TV, even in major tournaments. Um, and it, it has changed. And the sponsors, the marketeers are waking up and seeing a huge amount of potential for women's sport, but women's football in this country, which is our national sport. They've been treated like second-class citizens for so long. But now... These girls are getting the coaching from an early age. They're given a football at an early age, which helps. Um, they're stronger, fitter than ever before. Uh, you know, they, they've got all the medical um, support that they need, which they never used to have. Um, and so the WSL is stronger. The championship is stronger. Yes, you're going to have sad cases of, of the likes of Yeovil running out of money and what have you. It, it's not perfect. It's a long way from being a perfect structure. Um, but these clubs have to try to be as professional as they can, to be as self-sustaining as they can. But of course, it hugely helps when you've got the support of men's clubs like Chelsea, who do so much, the likes of Arsenal, who have done so much for so long, Man City, of course, now Manchester United belatedly coming to the party, can only be a good thing to have more and more clubs well-run, well-supported, and get the male men's clubs supporters along and it's not just women and girls that go by any stretch loads of them it's it's lads it's dads um and the next operation that i keep banging on about is operation bums on seats because they've got to turn this newfound support for the women's game the newfound professionalism they've got to turn it into bums on seats because there isn't that historical culture of people taking kids to watch women's games there has been for men's clubs whether it's Yeovil, whether it's Barnsley, whether it's Macclesfield, whether it's Manchester United, but now they have to find a, a culture and, and start taking kids, knowing when the matches are on, knowing where they play, and that's a huge marketing operation which, which has to has to still happen now in the future. Yeah, that's really interesting you said because I was uh, in Colorado for a couple of years and we had. Um, obviously there was Colorado Rapids Major League Soccer games and that was one audience and then we had a couple of prestige friendlies we had Brazil versus Panama uh, ahead of the Gold Cup a friendly ahead of the Gold Cup and we also had um, the US uh, women's national team versus Japan which was a repeat of the 2015 World Cup and we had those virtually back to back in a midweek period and what I noticed is is a the Rapids were averaging about 15,000 in a 19-20,000 stadium. Um, the Brazil game didn't sell out. It was about 12,000, 11,000. The US women's game sold out within an hour. And the crowd was entirely different to the Rapids crowd. And it was different to the crowd that turned up to see a decent Brazil side as well come to Colorado it was just interesting that the market or the appeal I should say of the US women's team who obviously 
fantastic. Um, was 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 different. So you're talking about the women's game, the, the Manchester United uh, men's team supporters, the women's team take a, a portion of that, likewise for Arsenal or Man City or whatever. I actually sense it was a little bit different with the US. Obviously, it's not a country steeped in football so much, but it actually had a different market. It was mums and little girls, mums and little girls, mums and families. Uh, but um, yeah, I just found that interesting. So is it trying to jump on uh, existing teams or is it finding those little girls whose first entry into football is ladies football not men's football yeah I mean I've taken my kids to several matches over the years women's games and um, so so little that they could run around at Staines where Chelsea women used to play and at um, Kings Meadow where they play now um, and at Arsenal and what have you so I would take them there because I knew it wasn't going to be too deafening I knew it would be okay for them to run around a little bit and it was just a very different setup and they only went to their first Premier League match on Saturday on their fifth and eighth birthday and somewhere where they can't run around all the time and, and you know pay attention when it is a lot louder um so I think marketing research needs to be done I spoke to one of the top clubs in the country the chairman um, few weeks ago about this because it's an ongoing issue and, and they do a lot um some of these clubs to, to try and get more people through the gates but the, nobody's really sure what the what the right formula is and so they were, this club is going to conduct their own research marketing research to find out who are the people that want to go to these games and where are the golden nuggets in terms of what can they tap into what groups can they tap into to get them to come along and and this person was saying to me that the dynamic is different at their club compared to say another club in the championship up north where you know so some people are mostly men and lads and some people are you know mostly women some clubs attract mostly women so but people just don't really know what the dynamic is and so they need to try and find that out first who wants to go to these games and I found it a little bit odd over the years that some clubs will or tweet about their games a little bit, but then they won't get the men's club to retweet it. I just think there are easy wins there. There are lots of things that can be done in marketing of the women's game that's more common sense rather than actually costing a whole lot of money to get an expensive agency in. Lots of very straightforward things. I mean, things that drive people like me potty when, you know, maybe I want to tweet about a game one day to say, hey, everyone, have you thought of going to one of your WSL or championship programmes? And I go on a website and think, right, where's the game and how do you get tickets? Because I wanted to tweet the link for them. And it's just impossible to find. It doesn't say anything about whether you can buy tickets on the day or are they sold out or how much are they? Oh, it's driving mad. So they have to get their own house in order, really. They have to get the basics right of really detailed websites of match reports, where a match is played, when are they played, what's the fixture list, um, better statistics, get the simple things right. And then at least when people do think, oh, actually, I quite fancy watching a so-and-so game, where can I... Where can I watch it? And they go on a website and then it's just there for them straight away. So those little things they need to sort out first and then the marketing research uh, and then actually doing the marketing to get people through the gate. Yeah, yeah, I entirely agree. And I, because then I, they become more attractive, become more attractive to um, sponsors, become more attractive to TV companies because the other thing is they don't, broadcasting companies, including the BBC, are not, charities they're not there to promote a sport as such they're there to give the viewers what they want but the BBC have been very proactive over the years um but equally a few years ago they couldn't justify showing WSL matches when there were a couple of hundred people there when the sporting directors at um at BBC would, would get it in the net from other sports going hang on we get full houses and you're not showing us but you're showing women's football so they have to get that balance right and their job in putting women's football on TV is made so much easier if there are full houses there of people showing that they want to go. And then, of course, the newspaper coverage, which has traditionally been really bad, but is so, so much better now. Um, if, if there are thousands of people through the gates and greater demand for more features on women's football, then, of course, sports editors are going to reassign their resources accordingly. So I really think that the bums on the seats situation is something that, that has to happen more quickly and the rest will follow. And sponsors will want to be part of it. And a good World Cup will help. Uh, just, oh, just, big time. Just, yeah. talk, just talk about where we are with that and, and um, 
the opportunity that England have because I was in America when the US women won it and uh, it was the highest watched uh, uh, soccer match on television in US history that the World Cup final, uh, yeah. which, which was which was incredible, and you know that if if the if the England women were to get to the final, there would be uh, a. Str- you know, uh, <laughs> I don't think it will be as big as if the men got to the World Cup final, but it would be a hefty percentage of it. We'd go nuts about it, surely. Well, that's the quickest way of. Um, having a major, major breakthrough in this country. Yes, we're we're getting there in terms of the league, the structure, the semi to full-time professionalism. But the biggest hit, the biggest shot in the arm for any of these things, the biggest catalyst to women's football being massive is, of course, winning a major trophy, whether a Euros or ideally a World Cup, as in this summer. And they have a great chance. They have phenomenal support from the FA these days in terms of the resources, what they need, the backroom staff. It is all there for them. They'd be the envy of lots of other countries in that regard. They've got a really good manager who the players really like. They've got some quality players, a good, strong pool of players to choose from. Touch wood, they're they're lucky with injuries. Um, And they have got a really good chance. And I, I do think that if they were to win the World Cup, that would see the game explode in this country. I think if they were to get to the final, it would be phenomenal as well. And you know, it's not going to be easy because don't forget, whilst England have improved, so is everybody else pretty much. And it's not going to be easy. But I think if they can start off well, which they didn't do against France last World Cup, they they lost one nil, and okay, it suited them actually to lose in terms of their pathway throughout the tournament. But the performance was just hideous to watch and a lot of people switched off as a result. So this time, hopefully they can make a good account of themselves early on and then take people through the tournament with them and and add viewers as they go and take people. I hate the word journey, but (laughs) take people through the tournament uh, and and build on it. Get people talking about it in the the offices by the water cooler the next day. Did you see the Lionesses last night? Good performance. Blimey, she's good. That Lucy Bronze. And then people who've never watched women's football before, not the diehards they'll watch anything um but getting new people people who are football fans already but have never watched the women's game or people who are not really into sport but maybe people like my friends for example who never watch football but will watch a world cup if they can start watching the women's world cup then that will help bigger picture wise in terms of them encouraging their daughters to then take up the game from an early age which then has massive knock-on effects in terms of the pool of quality of talent in years to come so if that is achievable, which I believe it is, um, and if they can get to the final and if they ideally can win it, then, wow. I mean, think of the opportunities in terms of the directors on boards of men's clubs and, and them thinking about assigning resources and how seriously do they want to take their women's programme? Do they want to take them out of the sort of foundation status and the charitable arm that it's in? Do they want to drag them into the men's club and and, and really fund them properly and, and, and get better coaching, get better medical setup, better scouting to recruit better players and to have better players playing in their badge and get them potentially winning trophies when the men's side may not be. I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications of getting improvements in the women's game as a whole in this country as a result of the national side being the beacon, the shining light. And, and and dragging them forward. And the same could be said for Scotland, because whilst England have got phenomenal resources, Scotland don't. And uh, yes, they're being sponsored and funded to be full-time for the duration of the preparation for the tournament. But there's a real lack of historical support there, and certainly financial. Um, so you'd hope that Scotland can do really well as well. And what a boost that would be for the game back home. All sorts of Really, really exciting ramifications could come about if if they can do well. Kim Little, she's already a superstar for women. Uh, sorry, for people who know women's football, but um, she can be a superstar in her own right if, if uh, given the platform at the World Cup. Just finally, throwing it forward, what were, what are your indications of success? I should say, if you're throwing it forward five years, ten years, what will be the the staging post to show that? women's sports journalism just to go back to that is on the right I was going to use the word journey but you don't like it pathway <laughs> <laughs> women's sport journalism sorry yeah, women yeah, talking about yeah, ju- or uh, coverage broad, broad, broadcasting 
the broadest sense of, of broadcasting and women's journalists. Just to throw it back to that, just, just my final question. What shows that we're on the right path? What do you look for? What will you look for in five to ten years' time? Well, hopefully we'll have more female writers. That's something that I feel really strongly about, hence why I joined the Football Writers Association, because there are so few. I mean, can you name me a, a full-time female staff football writer on a national newspaper? Uh, gold dust. Yeah, Alison Rudd. Yeah, not staff, but then... That's, is she not staff? Sorry, I didn't know she's staff. That's, 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 do you know what? That's a very minor detail. But yes, Alison Rudd. Um, okay, if we take the staff out of it because that's that's a technicality. Um, there are so, so few female football writers who work full-time on football. Hardly hardly any. Two, three, maybe. Uh, maybe four now with Katie Wyatt. But in terms of staff, so very few. So that's just nuts so we need to have more female bylines we need to have more women who are bursting with ideas bursting with contacts bursting with knowledge ideally bursting with confidence that doesn't always come early on but as the culture changes hopefully it will more women going to press conferences being in the press boxes having done their qualifications because there are a fair few on these courses but they just seem to slip away into marketing or maybe pr for something slightly different but really making that breakthrough and okay they want to go into broadcasting I understand that's more appealing, but there there are opportunities there if if these women are going to push themselves forward and, and have the aptitude and have them frankly just prepared to bash down doors to make it happen for themselves, not be polite and wait for the letterbox to flap because it, it really doesn't happen in journalism. You've got to make it happen for yourself. Um, so yes, more female football writers, please, would be great. More female sports writers, please, would be great. Um, and in terms of coverage of the women's of women's sport, the Telegraph uh, making great strides with Anna Kessel, who obviously know very well as their new women's sport editor. She was absolutely the right person for that job, and it, she should have been doing something like this for years, frankly. But hey, at least it's happening now. She knows so many people. She knows so many issues. She's written a book about it called Eat, Sweat, Play, about all the issues of women in sport. She, she's an absolute industry expert and she can get the right pieces commissioned and bring on more female writers. But she can't do it on her own. And the rest of the industry needs to modernise in lots of ways in, in terms of lack of BAME uh, journalists to just totally disproportionate to the number of BAME sports fans in this country um so that's something that clearly needs to change um I think we're very slowly getting there very slowly getting there but I think everybody needs to do more everybody needs to do more to make it happen not just to bang on about it not happening Jackie Oatley thank you very much thank you You can find sports content strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. Music.